to the book of Acts chapter 5. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts, and we come to chapter 5, verse 17. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you wave and get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please then make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. And then the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all of the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those who came called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captains of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. And so one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you, are, you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And him God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. And then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all of the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And then he said to them, Men of Israel, Take heed to yourself and what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodius rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men, and let them alone. For if, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, but let them go. And so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to share, to uh, suffer shame for his, that is, Jesus' name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And we thank you for your desire for not only to have it impact our hearts and impact our minds, but to go all the way into that new creation that you have produced within us as Christians, the new man and the inner man. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and that your word would minister to heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the beauty of the truth, the glory of the realities that are found in this passage would be taken by your Holy Spirit off of the printed page and brought into our lives, Lord, into a living and blessed and fruitful place. We ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in our lives this morning. Speak to us, Lord. It means the world to us to hear your voice, whatever it is that you might speak. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're studying the book of Acts in order to examine Christianity at its purest and most powerful here in the early church, to learn from the Christianity and the Christians of that early church how, that God used in order to, even in the mouths of their enemies, as will be confessed later on in the book in chapter 17, where even their enemies were forced to confess that you've turned the whole world upside down with this gospel. We see already there in uh, verse 28, the enemies, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders are forced to confess that they've already filled Jerusalem with this doctrine concerning Jesus and the gospel and salvation. Ultimately, it will go into the whole world as a powerful time in the history of the church. And since there's always that need to go back to the foundation, back to our roots and in this world that we live in that's so chaotic, even spiritually speaking, we can lose our bearings. And so the importance of allowing our Christianity to be defined by the book and by the Bible and by the Holy Spirit, uh, lest we get pulled away from uh, what we think we might never be pulled away from. And that's our desire in the study of the book of Acts and our desire this morning as well, is to turn this whole world that we live in, in this moment in human history, upside down with the gospel. The context of our, the events of our passage is that this is a very, very exciting season for the early church. It was a very exciting time to be a Christian, a dangerous time, but a very exciting time to be a Christian. God was operating in great power in that early church and in the city of Jerusalem, great signs and wonders being done, great miracles being accomplished through the apostles, God confirming the gospel with these signs and wonders. Huge numbers of people were being saved, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 at the beautiful gate to the temple. We're told in verse 14 of this chapter, as we saw last time, that multitudes, the Holy Spirit is even putting a number on the number of people that are being saved, multitudes of both men and women coming to the Lord and becoming Christians despite the death of Ananias and Sapphira. And things just simply could not have been going better. Christians and Christianities was the talk of the town. It was what everyone was talking about at that moment in time in the city of Jerusalem. 
if a person themselves had not been saved in recent days, in weeks, in months, then some family member had, some acquaintance had, some friend or neighbor had. It was very exciting. Everyone talking about Christ, Christianity, the gospel, all of these things uh, being discussed, household to household, neighborhood to neighborhood. And all of this, of course, didn't go on unnoticed by the Jewish religious leaders at the time, the religious establishment of the time. It's a paradox. It's a weird thing. You experience it in your life too. Here you have the same gospel, the same message from God, the same events that produce such joy and exhilaration in one group of people. How in the world, we think in our minds, can those very same events produce this kind of a result in this person, and yet in another group of people, the complete antithesis of it. And the Jewish religious leaders of the day were completely threatened by what God was doing, and they looked upon what was happening with great jealousy, and it produced indignation in them, as we're told in verse 17. The expansion of the kingdom of God always occurs at the expense of the kingdom of darkness. It's always the case, whether revival comes to a city, whether it comes to a nation, or whether you lead your neighbor to Christ, that always happens at the expense of the kingdom of darkness, and the devil always rises up to resist that. Whether that resistance is in the form of coming from pure secularism, what is recognized as secularism within our culture, coming from the culture of sex, drugs, rock and roll, or whether the resistance rises up from behind a robe, a religious robe, whether the persecution comes from the world and all, again, it's uh, secularism or it comes from religion, but it still comes and the devil puts up a fight for any territory that he loses. And again, as these religious leaders did in chapter 4, we're told in verse 18 that they ordered the apostles to then be arrested and imprisoned for the purpose of putting them on trial the following day. And during the night, God sent an angel into that prison and secured the release of the apostles from that prison cell and ordered them to return to what God had called them to do, and that was the preaching of the gospel on the streets of Jerusalem. Sometimes people wonder whether God has a sense of humor. I don't know. I think He does. I know He has a sense of irony from this situation alone. He sends an angel. He could have just popped open the doors of the prison, but he sends an angel to secure the release of the apostles, knowing full well that the news would come to the Sadducees who didn't believe in angels at all. God is doing, even in the midst of their rejection and their rebellion, doing all He can to open their eyes up to the foolishness of their resistance and bring them to the knowledge of the truth. God is gracious. And the trial begins to unfold the following day, as we're told in, in detail, beginning in verse 21. The Jewish assembly or council is put together, known in ancient times as the Sanhedrin, and here they are put in their places, this august body filled with a sense of self-importance, and now they're going to order as they're seated these prisoners to be brought in to be tried and to give them what for, for uh, what it is in violating their commandment. And so there they are, they're seated, and, and then as they're seated, the order given to bring the prisoners, but the report comes back that there are no prisoners. But these prisoners that were formerly in the prison are now outside in the area of the temple preaching the gospel and 
speaking of Jesus once again, and they were ordered to be rearrested, and they were, but carefully rearrested. And then in verse 28, the charges were leveled against them. They declared to the apostles, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And all of this has its roots in chapter 4, following a similar trial that occurred in which the apostles were brought before the same uh, group associated with the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate when they declared in chapter 4, verse 18, they commanded the apostles and the disciples not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter here, speaking for all the apostles, he responds in verse 29, and it's the focus of our Bible study this morning, and he declared to them, we ought to obey God rather than men, and proceeded once again to preach the gospel to these religious leaders, how it is that Jesus came into the world and died upon a cross, was buried, rose again on the third day to pay the price that he didn't owe because we owed a price that we couldn't pay and that forgiveness of sins is found in him. And they, he violates their demand there in verse 28 right before them, seconds after they've made the demand of him. The response of the council is there in verse 33. They were determined to put all of them to death. And then a cooler head in the form of a great Jewish rabbi by the name of Gamaliel prevails. He doesn't like the emotion of the scene. He doesn't like the anger of the scene, what these religious leaders are planning on doing. And he ordered the apostles out of the room, and then he spoke to the religious leaders alone. And he advised them to leave this whole situation with God and allow God to do with these men, with their message, with the gospel, whatever he saw fit to do. And the council agreed with him but proceeded to have the apostles beaten and then released them from custody once again with the command not to speak in the name of Jesus. And the response of the apostles, and it's important to notice in verses 41 and 42 because it's significant, far from feeling sorry for themselves, far from looking at things and saying, it is, if this is the best way you can take care of your servants, God, then we don't want to have anything else to do with this, or going into some kind of proverbial pity party or something like that, far from feeling sorry for themselves, much less allowing these events to intimidate them or to silence them, they rejoiced, verse 41, that they had been granted the privilege, the privilege of suffering shame for Jesus' name. And they were filled with joy over that, and they expressed that joy to one another. And in verse 42, they continued to preach and teach concerning Jesus. And this morning, I want to spend our remaining time focusing specifically on that first sen sentence of Peter's reply to the Sanhedrin there in verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. This passage contains a life circumstance that is the portion of every single Christian every single day. Every Christian in this room 
and every Christian in the entirety of the whole world. It is an example of something that's familiar to every single one of us, and it is an example of the constant and tremendous pressure that is upon us to compromise our biblical and moral convictions in order to accommodate the opposing convictions of the world around us. The temptation to compromise is continual, and it's great. And the pressure that can be brought to bear against us can be very, very significant. Merriam-Webster in that dictionary uh, gives a threefold uh, definition of compromise. I'll read all three to you. Number one, it is a way of reaching agreement in which each person or group gives up something that was wanted in order to end an argument or dispute. Number two, something that combine, combines the qualities of two different things. Number three, change that makes something worse and that is not done for good reason. Now, I think it's very important for us as Christians to realize that not all compromise is sinful. Indeed, compromise is a necessary part of life at this point, at this side of heaven, and the examples in life are all around us. Perhaps you had this experience as a child. I had it multiple times, and uh, here you are. You have maybe uh, several brothers and sisters. There was a cake for dessert the night before, and the next day you wake up, and there's but one piece of cake left. And there I stand with my twin brother, Gabe, and each of us wants that piece of cake, but we realize a compromise is going to have to be worked out here, uh, a fist fight or a compromise concerning that uh, piece of cake. And so we decide that we're going to have to split that, but then that raises the question, ah, but how to split it fairly? And so you come up with the compromise that the person who cuts the cake in half it then is the, would be the person that would then have to allow the other person to have the first choice in order to assure the fairest of cuts. You know all about this. I know you do. And so a compromise occurred. Marriages are filled with compromises and lawful compromises because it's the blending of two lives together in which one person doesn't always get their way. At least it, it shouldn't uh, be that way. And so they sit down and they discuss their finances and establishing a budget within the household, and it's mutually agreed to with a compromise that's typically required of both husband and wife to come up with that budget. You take him or her out to dinner one night, and she wants Chinese food, and he wants Indian food. And so you compromise, and you find a Thai restaurant uh, to go to. Partners in business engage in compromise all of the time, as do politicians. Any home that is filled with multiple people in which there is one television and one remote it is a picture of ongoing compromise that's occurring within that home, especially during college bowl season and the NFL playoffs. But somebody's got to give, somebody's got to take in, in order to, for one television to uh, do what's necessary within the household. But what is happening in this Bible passage is pressure to compromise in a way that's sinful. The pressure to disobey the commandments of God 
under the pressure of others to do so. Jesus had given these apostles, the disciples, has given to us, likewise, what is known as the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a commission, and it was a commandment. And here the Jewish religious leaders are demanding that they do the exact opposite, to cease their preaching of Jesus, to cease their teaching about Jesus. And the disciples are being threatened with death if they fail to do so. Sometimes you will hear Christians quote this verse in verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men a little more loosely than they ought to. And so sometimes uh, they'll quote it in relationship to some new law that's been passed by the government that they don't necessarily like, some new policy that the government has enacted that they don't necessarily agree with. In fact, they hold very strong convictions against uh, this law. But if the law does not force me to obey some clear command of Scripture, then I am to obey that law and then work very hard, if I like, within the perimeters of the law to change the law if I choose to. It isn't something where it's a violation of my whim or a violation of my strong opinions or even my strong convictions. Here we're talking about where somebody is putting great pressure upon us, whether it's the world or the flesh or the devil, to compromise a commandment that is clear in the Word of God. And this goes on in all kinds of places in life, uh, this uh, pressure uh, where we possess this clear command of God on one hand, then the pressure from others to compromise that command in terms of being obedient to it. Uh, government, as we've mentioned, is a source of this kind of thing. There is a continual pressure, most often and in most places, to cheat in business, to lie in business, to steal in business in order to survive or to increase the profits or whatever it might be. There certainly is pressure to compromise in the raising of our children because we're called as Christians to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And there is constant pressure to compromise related to that because the gap between what God calls us to do as parents in the raising and the training of our children and what the world now deems to be proper or acceptable, that great gap is becoming a gulf and it's ever-increasing, sometimes even within families. Sometimes, sadly enough, even among those that call themselves Christians, there can be within an extended family pressure to compromise the Word of God. And sometimes it comes most powerfully from family. And so, as you know, this pressure is all around us, this pressure to accommodate our biblical convictions in order to accommodate what the Bible declares to be the sinful spiritual and moral convictions of others. And so how are we to respond to this kind of pressure? And wonderfully, the passage reveals to us how we're to respond to it in the same way that Peter and the apostles did in the early church. And we notice, first of all, that 
they politely, and they were polite, they politely but very strongly and very clearly and very utterly rejected the command that man was bringing against them in violation of the Word of God. And when anyone forces us to choose between pleasing anyone else or the entire world collectively and God, then we're always to choose to please the Lord. And to do so, not with a wringing of our hands or with tears in our eyes, but to obey God and to please God and to recognize that it is an honor and it is a privilege to do so. Think about Noah in the Old Testament. The time of Noah, only eight human beings survived that age. Think about the pressure that was brought against Noah, brought against him, his family. They stood against an entire world, which some Bible scholars estimate because of the length of life before the flood, numbered as great in numbers as we have on the earth today. And yet Noah resisted the pressure of the world against obeying God and the building of that ark so that there might be a bloodline that in one day a Messiah might come into the world and you and I might sit in a room like this and be saved and forgiven of our sins and in a relationship with God. Do you think today Noah was happy for the decision that he made to stand against even the resistance of the entire world in order to obey God? and in order to please God. I think he's very glad he did. And the Bible teaches that as the end of the age approaches, and indeed I think it, it is very close that the last days, the times will become like the times of Noah, and it will require that kind of conviction concerning compromise in order to stand, to just stop temptation by temptation, pressure by pressure, to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about this, and then to do it. And no Christian will ever be ashamed of having done so. I've walked with the Lord since 1980. You could make the same testimony concerning your own life. Never once in which the pressure came to bear, and it's been continual my entire Christian life, and never more so than today, when this pressure comes to bear against us, and we look and say, what does God's Word say about this? And then we obey it. The Bible says we'll never be ashamed of having gone God's way. I'm, ne I'm ashamed of many decisions that I have made in life, but never ashamed of having obeyed Him and then seen what it is that then He added to the situation and added to my obedience. I know it's your testimony as well. As Christians, we all know that it's very, very easy to obey God when it's easy to obey God. <laughs> when there's no opposition, when there's no price to be paid for obeying God, no relationship in jeopardy, no promotion in jeopardy, no job in jeopardy, no relationship with a neighbor in jeopardy. It's always easy to obey God when there's no opposition, no pressure from the world or the flesh or the devil. The real test is whether I will obey God when the pressure is on. And that's exactly what's happening in this situation. When it will really cost me something to fail to compromise and to make my stand upon the Word of God. And there's a whole world of Christians who over the long haul of their Christian life have settled into a Christianity 
in which they readily obey God when it's easy to, when it's convenient to, when it's profitable to do so. But the moment it really costs them something in order to obey God, then they fold into compromise in half a second. And I don't say it to be critical. I say it simply as an observation. There's a man who is not quite old yet, but I'm well on my way to getting there. And so recognizing that this kind of Christianity, so-called Christianity, is, all, is what all of us would be tempted to drift into. My flesh loves it. My flesh loves to obey God when it's easy. It doesn't want to obey God when it's hard. I know everything about what it is to stand. I know everything about what it is to, to resist. I know what, everything about what it is to compromise and how much my flesh loves and is tempted by compromise. And so it's important for us to look at the passage, to try to learn some keys to where this kind of holy decisiveness that we see in the passage comes from in the face of this immense pressure. Their lives are on the line. That's the ultimate pressure that will ever be brought to bear in a person's life concerning their convictions. And that is the situation that they find themselves in. And so where does this kind of clarity, this kind of decisiveness that we see in Peter and the others come from? Well, first of all, and supremely, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And Peter wants us to know it because he makes mention of the Holy Spirit in verse 32, and he's careful to do that. None of us have any hope of standing, even as Christians, against the pressure that is brought to bear against us to compromise apart from the Holy Spirit. We cannot live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. We need the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We need, as Jesus spoke in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit will come upon us. He was speaking to Christians. And, the, and that baptism with the Holy Spirit will give us the power to be witnesses unto Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. In our mind, they're just places. They're just cities. But they speak about something that's real in our life. Here is the power of the Holy Spirit that God gives us to be a witness and not to succumb to compromise in Jerusalem, in our homes, sometimes the hardest place to stand, and then in Judea, Samaria, and then while on a business trip on the other side of the world or on a missions trip on the other side of the world. It is the power of God to stand for God in any environment and in any opposition that the world may bring against us, the necessity in our lives of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. If you've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If your life is one, again, I don't speak as, as putting anybody down related to this, but if your life is one of unending compromise, failure, temptation and fall and temptation and fall, there's a noticeable act of uh, absence of victory within your life. I'm not talking about perfection, but but your Christianity is a defeated Christianity. There is the baptism with the Holy Spirit that is available, as Jesus promised, to give us the power to live for God 
even when we get put before the uh, 70 most powerful men in all of Israel, religious men, and put on trial with our lives uh, being threatened. We all need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We need to be being filled with the Holy Spirit, refilled with the Holy Spirit over and over again. I don't doubt that as the apostles stood in this particular scene and, and as they see what it is that's going on and what's developing, that each one of them then asked to be freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, the power to properly stand for God in this situation and to represent Him well in the situation. And the beautiful thing about the baptism with the Holy Spirit and being refilled with the Holy Spirit continually in our Christian life is that it's available for the asking. Jesus declared in Luke chapter 11, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do, he said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's just there for the asking and for the receiving. Second, clearly they had settled the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life. Jesus was more than their Savior. He was their Savior, wonderfully so. And, and that's a glorious uh, thing and a glorious experience and relationship. But Jesus was also their Lord. And there, there wasn't a moment's hesitation in their response. When this charge is brought against them that they violated the command to silence and no longer speak about Jesus, there was no silence. There was no hemming and hawing. There were no sidelong glances one to another where, okay, I wonder what John is going to say. I wonder what Peter is going to say. I wonder what Thaddeus is going to say here in this situation. There was no forming of a committee. Instantly, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, speaking for all of them, declared, we ought to obey God rather than men. No hesitation at all. And obedience to God in the face of whatever the temptation to compromise, that was a settled issue in their lives. They didn't find themselves in front of situation by situation that was a temptation to compromise, and now they're going to spend some long time to figure out what they're going to do. The Lordship of Christ was established in their life. What His Word said to do was what they would do, and that's exactly what they did. I think of the Old Testament St. Joseph in this regard. Here he is, 18 or 19 years old, sexual appetite at almost its peak, and, and an adult male at that particular time, Potiphar's wife, doubtless a beautiful woman, these very powerful men in Egypt at that time, they married beautiful women. And Joseph were told that in form and appearance, he was very, very handsome. It means he had muscles, and it means he had a great good-looking face to go with it. This guy's the total package, uh, ready for Hollywood. And she puts her eye on him and desires to lay with him. And one day she arranges for the whole house to be empty and then grabs a hold of his jacket, his robe, and then calls on, invites him to lie with her. And she speaks and says to him, lie with me. And his immediate response, there's no sense that at that moment he's now trying to figure out what he ought to do, what decision he's going to make. That's no time to be making that decision. A decision in terms of the lordship of Christ and what we're going to do in the face of that temptation has to be made long before we ever face a temptation like that. And he refused, and he said to the master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is, 
with me in the house, and he's committed all that I, he has to my hand, and there's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. And he's essentially saying to her, I will not sin against your husband. And then he went on to say, and how can I then do this great wickedness and sin against the Lord? And the moment of the crisis, that's not a time to be figuring out. That needs to be a settled issue ahead of time, and it was with Joseph. And these disciples and these apostles and this ancient Christianity, which is a current-day Christianity as it's defined by the Word of God, they possessed the recognition that their lives were no longer their own, but that they belonged to God, to be used by God for His purposes and for His glory. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, a church that was very, very familiar with the relationship with Jesus as their Savior, but not so familiar with knowing Him as their Lord. And Paul wrote rightfully and accurately to that church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul wrote concerning himself to the churches at Galatia, one of the most famous verses in the epistle to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and he described his own attitude and his own life in this way. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's the famous story of St. Augustine that captures all of this very well. He was a bit of a womanizer before he came to know the Lord. And after he had confessed faith in Jesus and become a Christian, he ran into on the streets as he was walking uh, the streets of his city, he ran into a former mistress of his on the street. He spotted her before she spotted him, and he immediately turned on his heel and began to walk rapidly in the other direction. But she did spot him nonetheless, and she was surprised at his reaction, that he would not come closer to her, but that he had turned on his heel and was moving in the other direction. And she cried out down the street to Augustine. She said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine continued to move in his direction and cried out over his shoulder, yes, but it is no longer I. <laughs> A change had occurred within his life, and he knew it, I think, very regularly of a missionary by the name of James Calvert, whose the call that God had upon his life was to go with a group of missionaries, to lead a group of missionaries, to evangelize the cannibals in the Fiji Islands. And as the captain of the ship pulled up to the Fiji Islands at that time and took these missionaries and put them into the boats in order to take them then to the shore, the captain, confused by all of it, he cried out and he said, you'll lose your life and the lives of those who are with you if you go out among such savages. And John Calvert replied, we died before we came. We died before we came. And that's our heritage. 
and that's Christianity. And no one makes a spiritual dent in this world who does not not only make Jesus their Savior, but also their Lord, and who does not settle the issue of his lordship in our lives. And it's not like Jesus kept it a secret. He said, listen, come to me, put your faith in me, and then he pops like more demands upon us. He's up front about it all the way through his ministry. When he cried out to the disciples one day and declared to them, he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think third in looking at what is the explanation for this kind of strength in the face of compromise, certainly they possessed a desire to please God that was greater than any desire to please man. And in each and every one of us, there is a desire to please people. We are people pleasers at our core. Some people less so than other people, but all of us have to deal with it as Christians. Margaret Thatcher famously said, if you set out to be liked, you would be prepared to compromise on anything at any time, and you would achieve nothing. And so, yes, as Christians, we are to love people and to love our neighbor as ourself. It's the second of the two greatest commands that are the encapsulation of the entirety of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. As Jesus declared, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And the second is likened unto it, and that is to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the order of the commandments are significant, and they're never to be flipped upside down. Because if I must disobey God in order to express love to another person, then I am not really expressing love. And I think the Apostle Paul spoke very, very definitively from his very vast experience of intense pressure to compromise in this regard when he declared again to the church at Galatia in chapter 1. He said, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And there's something about hearing that that does something very important in me. Because I'm just like you. I want everybody to like me. I want everyone to agree with every decision that I make. I want to be everybody's friend. I have the same, we all have the same emotions and the desires in that way. And then here Paul reminds of one of the great reasons for the effectiveness of his life and the work of the Holy Spirit through his life is that this desire to be loved by people and accepted by people must never occur at the expense of compromise because ultimately it doesn't help anyone, not in this life and not in the life to come. But notice, too, a fourth thing concerning these convictions that stood up so strongly to the temptation to compromise that they considered, and it's very significant in verse 41 and 42, that they considered it an honor to suffer for Jesus' name. 
they considered it an honor to be shamefully treated and and for any shameful treatment that they experienced for being associated with the name of Jesus in this world. That was their mindset. That was their heart attitude toward the rejection and the persecution that they experienced as a result of being faithful to the Lord and faithful to His commandments. There is something wrong with a world that hates Jesus. There is something wrong with a person who hates Jesus. There is something wrong with a world that hates Christians for following Jesus. There is something wrong with an individual human being who hates Christians for simply following Jesus. And we can be made to feel that there is something wrong with us. And it isn't something wrong with us. It is something wrong with them and something that is fundamentally wrong with the world. And Jesus, for that reason, taught us that this mindset needs to be ours as well, to recognize that it's an honor to suffer for being and remaining faithful to Him. He declared in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, praise God, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Now let me close by noting a couple of, of the blessings of living an uncompromising life as a child of God. It isn't the easiest life. The Christian life isn't the easiest life in the world. In fact, in many ways, it's the hardest life a person can live. But it is the best life. It's the only life. It is the best life. And I think in terms of blessings, in terms of remaining faithful to the Lord in the face of compromise, there's the blessing of knowing that no matter what anybody else thinks about me, no matter whether they number in the hundreds or whether they number in the thousands or whether they number in the twos and threes within a family or whether they number as in the times of Noah, the whole world stacked against you, there's the blessing of knowing that no matter what anyone and everyone else might think of me, that I am right with God and that my life is one that blesses Him. And there is no blessing in life that can compare to that. It is that great feeling and sense that, that we experience of knowing that God is pleased, that God is with me, that God loves me, that God understands the stand that is being taken biblically that must be taken and without which all of the applause and the acceptance of man at the cost of compromise, it means nothing. Think about what it means at the end of the day to put our heads on the pillow and know that, no, we haven't been perfect, not even for that day, not even as hard as we tried to be perfect. But when the pressure to compromise came, to deny his name and to deny him and the life that he's called me into, 
that we stood against it, and however many enemies it might have made of me on that day, that he is pleased with me, and my relationship with him is uninterrupted. That's the most priceless feeling a person can have in all of life. A second thing that this kind of conviction and living in, in the face of compromise produces is a great confidence in our lives concerning the future, a confidence that a compromiser can never know. It is the confidence that is in our life of knowing that I am right in the perfect will of God. And here we are with a new year right around the corner. In fact, it's not around the corner. Here we are headed firmly into the midst of it, aren't we? And to look at this world that we live in, the United States that we live in, and as we look at this world that we live in, never has it been more dangerous, in my estimation, for a Christian in the United States than ever before. And so the importance of having a path in life, and this is what a life of obedience to the Lord without compromise, it assures me that I am on a path that is safe and a path that is blessed and and again, never in our lifetimes is that assurance more important to us. The world is such a dangerous place, and we think about it almost solely in terms of physically. How many people are getting shot? What are the terrorists doing now? What are the murder rates? And what is this and all of this in a physical realm? And the world is a dangerous place physically, but it is a very dangerous place emotionally. It is just as dangerous a place mentally. It is just as dangerous a place spiritually. And how wonderful it is to know that there is a path through this minefield and a path through this life that is safe and that it is blessed and that we have the privilege of walking on it and to know that whatever comes into the world, whatever happens in the world in 2016 and beyond until the Lord returns, that I am on a path that is safe and I am on a path that God blesses. And that is a wonderful, wonderful blessing in life. By God's grace and power, let's commit to meeting every pressure to compromise in the coming year the same way that the disciples did. We ought to obey God rather than man. Don't you want everything that God has for you, every blessing that God has waiting for you in the coming year? We all do. We want to get every single one of those things as we make our way through the year. And this is the path that leads to all of it. The day before yesterday, a friend of mine emailed me a page from a commentary, a very famous commentator known as John Phillips. And it's the opening page of John Phillips' commentary to the gospel according to John, which had... As I read it, I thought, this has everything to do with what we're examining today. And I'd like to read it to you this morning. And I know at this point in a sermon, it can be hard to concentrate a little bit, but if you're able to do it, I think it'll reward you amply. Phillips wrote, by the time John took up his pen to write his gospel, his epistles, and the apocalypse, the first century of the Christian era was about to close. As an old man, he looked out on a world much different from the one that he had known as a boy. Jerusalem was no more. The Jewish people had been uprooted and scattered to the ends of the earth. The church was spreading over the entire world, too, and had already endured the terrible persecutions of Nero and Domitian. 
The roots of apostasy were everywhere. Gnosticism threatened to change Christianity into something unrecognizable. Peter was gone. James was gone. The Apostle Paul was gone. And John wrote for the third generation of Christians. By its third generation, a movement stands in desperate need of revival, or else it will either disappear altogether or linger on as a ghost of its former self. In the first generation, truth is a conviction. Those who hold a conviction hold it dearly. They do not know the meaning of compromise. They're willing to die for what they believe to be true. In the second generation, the conviction becomes a belief. Sons hold to the truths that have been taught by their fathers and defend their beliefs in discussion and debate. The keen edge of conviction, however, has been blunted, and adherence to a body of beliefs inherited from the fathers is not so much a passion as a persuasion. In the third generation, the belief becomes an opinion. And by then, some members of the movement are willing to trade in their opinions for anything that promises to be a fair exchange. They feel it is time for a change. They start talking about renewal, and they look to the world for ideas. And John wrote for just such a third generation. He wrote with a sense of urgency. He did not write, as did the synoptists, from the viewpoint of an infant church. He wrote from the standpoint of an infirm church, one that is in dire peril from persecution without and subversion from within. Those are an interesting three words, aren't they? Conviction, belief, and opinion. In the first generation, truth is a conviction. In the second generation, the conviction becomes a belief. And in the third generation, it becomes an opinion. And unless it is actively and mightily guarded against, it is the natural downward progression of things over time. Whether in a movement of God, in a denomination or non-denomination of churches, or whether in the church itself, or whether in an individual life, the Christian who begins their Christian life with such conviction concerning God's commandments willing to stand for them, willing to endure at that time, all loss required in order to do so. But then over time, convictions become merely beliefs, something I believe to be true, but which I no longer feel is necessary to obey, necessary to live. And I essentially compartmentalize my life. My beliefs are still orthodox, but practically speaking, my life is one of compromise, from virtually sea to shining sea, but ultimately, even that never holds. Eventually, there has to be the collapse of even belief. And now my life, so dominated by compromise, the gap between what I believe and the life that I'm living, whether secretly or openly, becomes so great that it becomes a folly not only to others but to myself, that I could live such a life in the light of the beliefs that I claim to hold. And then something has to give. I must either abandon my compromise and re-embrace my convictions, my beliefs, or I must abandon my beliefs and fully embrace a life of compromise. And then upon doing that, what were once convictions in my life, beliefs in my life, I hold now to be merely opinions. And you know what's the saddest thing about that progression? 
the most dangerous thing about that progression is that we can come to convince ourselves that this progression has occurred in our lives as a mark of spiritual maturity when in fact it is simply a life that has been overrun by compromise. And these become the inevitable steps required to protect myself from facing that fact. Is that you this morning? The privacy of your own heart, the privacy of my own heart. If it is, at the start of this new year, confess the sin that you're protecting through compromise. Confess it to God. Ask for his forgiveness. Repent of it. And rededicate your life fully to the Lord once again. I'm convinced that the greatest danger that most of us will face as Christians in our spiritual life and the vibrancy of that life is not apostasy, not even open backsliding, but to settle into a life of compromise. And it's so subtle and it's so dangerous. And there would be no book of Acts for us to read today or to model our lives after today unless there were Christians in that early church who refused to compromise God's word. Whatever the pressure was brought to bear upon their lives in order to get them to do so. And that needs to be our hearts as well as we endeavor to live a Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit and the wooing of the Holy Spirit as it is described to us in the glory of the entirety of this book. We ought to obey God rather than men. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for how private you are in your dealings within our life and how patient you are. And I ask and we ask, Lord, not only for our own individual lives, but for each one that is in this room and for us as a church, if in any way compromise has been introduced or in any way the glorious and privileged standard of your word has drop below where it needs to be within our lives. We pray that you would put your finger on it, Lord, and show it to us, and then give us the grace to recognize it for the folly that it is, the danger that it is, and then to confess it to you, to repent of it, and then to rededicate our lives fully to you. We pray, Lord, for that work of your Holy Spirit within our lives, not only for our own sakes, Lord, but for your glory and for your purposes and plans for our individual lives. And Lord, for the good and for the necessity of a world that is more desperately in need of hope and seeing something real and different among your people than perhaps ever before, certainly in our lifetimes, and that they might see that reality within our lives. We pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in us, Lord. And we thank you that in praying that we are asking according to your will, and thus you hear it, and thus you answer our prayer. Bless you, Lord. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the needed thing and the good thing that it does in each of us. 
And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.